0: Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski. Jeff is the head of global research at Alhambra Investments. And Jeff is going to give a reason why futures curve in the Eurodollar market and the treasury curve have inverted. Now, a lot of people are saying, well, that's because the economy is not in good shape. But we're going to go deeper. We're going to go look at collateral, financial collateral, and what that might mean for the wider system, for the monetary system, and eventually finance, economy, society, politics. Jeff, you wrote a two-part story, right? We're going to go over part one, and then we'll go over part two. Now, part one is called There is an Absolutely Solid Collateral Case for What's Driving Curve Inversions, and that was posted on March 15th, 2022, the Ides of March. Here's what you wrote. Aside from economic concerns, Is there a pure money case to be made for these curves, the yield curve, weirdly shaped as it is, along with the very heavy inversion to euro-dollar futures? Jeff, before we begin, let's remind the audience that before 2007-2009, most interbank short-term lending was done on an uncollateralized basis. And so collateral was good, not the worst thing in the world. But since then, it's become very, very important, hasn't it? It's gained importance.
1: Yeah, the unsecured markets, by and large, have disappeared entirely. There's very little volumes, say, for example, in federal funds. Basically, it's whatever leftover change the GSEs have that they can give out on the given day. Other than that, there's really nobody in unsecured lending because, let's face it, after 2007 and 2008, the last thing you want to do is to be in business with a counterparty you don't know because they could be up to no good. And it was shown repeatedly the dangers of doing so. So how do you mitigate the risks of being in a short-term lending relationship with somebody you don't actually know? Well, you could do a couple of different things. Most of them involve making the borrower of your cash put up some form of collateral or security, and therefore you should be somewhat protected. And since the 2007-2008 crisis, repo has been basically what's left over What's basically the the backbone of the global monetary system, along with short run, uh, short term derivatives, things like currency swaps too, that in many ways mimic a repo transaction. But secured lending arrangements are the way it's done today. We're going to go
0: over four measures, two very quickly, and then number three and four will be each of their own parts. We'll really dive into them. Four measures, monetary measures that might be explaining. The inversions. But Jeff, first I'm going to push back. You just said that you don't really want to be in business. You don't want to be lending or borrowing. Well, maybe you want to be borrowing to parties that you don't know what they're doing without collateral. But that's how it used to be, Jeff. I say we'll go back to that way one day. And maybe that's an even safer way. Because right now we're putting too much pressure on collateral. And I would suggest to you that the banks, when they borrow or lent to someone, they knew what that party was up to through the grapevine, right? So I think it's the era that we're in, not so much the practice of lending unsecured short-term funds. What do you think of that idea?
1: No, there's a can of worms there. I mean, we could have a whole discussion about that because let's face it, there's discipline involved, right? When you have a lot at risk, you take a much, or at least you're supposed to, you take a much more heightened awareness about what your counterparties are up to because. You go, I go, we go together, you know, you default and it leads to all sorts of trouble, not just for you, but for me and lots of other people. So maybe there's some value to unsecured arrangements where we start to take a a little more scrutiny. Whereas in repo, we've kind of given ourselves a false sense of comfort, right? Because we have some Mm -hmm. form of security. But as we found out time and time again, even in the 2008 crisis itself, which to me was far more about collateral than anything else, we found out that, you know, security isn't so secure either that, yes, maybe you're posting a U.S. treasury to me, but maybe you don't own that treasury. Maybe it belongs to somebody else. And maybe there's all sorts of other junk involved in the collateral streams, too. So even though repo has is theoretically, ideally, a very a much safer arrangement for doing short-term funding relationships or short-term you know, securities or relationships maybe it actually isn't uh, such a great idea after all, because let's face it, there's a number of complications. There's almost sort of anonymity to it where, you know, everybody can just trade collateral, not really get involved in each other's businesses. And therefore, we just kind of let things happen. Or or maybe in in our current case, participants in these markets aren't taking enough interest. And so they just give up and say, look, I don't want to take any risk at all. And so I'm just going to depend on a collateralized relationship when Maybe the other way of doing things was more of a uh, efficient and uh, sustainable way of, of moving forward. And I would suggest that we are in an environment, an economic depression,
0: in the United States for fifteen years, Japan thirty, whereby the creation of actual collateral, private enterprise, wealth, advancement, plant, property, equipment, ideas, is happening at such a slow pace. The creation of new collateral that it's not gonna be enough to sustain. There's not enough of this collateral to support the economy as it is right now. There wasn't enough when we transitioned from 2008 to a collateral system, and now we're expecting the economy to generate more actual collateral, the advancement of an economy, no, no, that's not going to be happening in this environment. So there's just not enough collateral.
1: Yeah. And the downside of that, Emil, right, is in lieu of the real economy creating good quality collateral, the financial system mm. attempts to engineer quality collateral that actually isn't. You know, So we have all of these securities lending practices, securities transformation, collateral transformation, where we start with the absolute junk financial collateral and make it try to polish it up and make it pristine when it actually isn't. It just sows the seeds of the next round's destruction, right? So that, I mean, the fact that the real economy and the financial system have to deal with the shortage of collateral and do it in such a sort of an ad hoc sort of a, a, you know, in kind of insane sort of way, that is in and of itself a problem too. You know, how do we deal with the shortage? Security is lending. We're going to focus on that. You
0: list two others. Just very quickly, Jeff, T-bill yields, they could signal that we're
1: in some sort of monetary shortage or scarcity. Yesterday was a perfect example, which is the day after the Fed. uh, The Fed raised the RRP to 30 basis points in the first day of the four-week. This was Thursday, March 17th. The four-week Treasury bill yielded 20. The 10 basis points below RRP, which is, to me, a very, very, very solid indication of way too much demand for Treasury bills. And then repurchase agreement fails to deliver
0: or to receive. We've talked about it in a different episode. Have you seen anything new there other than just the general increase?
1: Now we're still kind of in the same level. So nothing has escalated, but it's still elevated. All right. So we're now going to focus on
0: securities lending and the data that we can get from the Federal Reserve. Jeff. What is securities lending? We talked about it before, but uh, what does the Federal Reserve
1: provide us? What doesn't it provide us? And then we'll go into looking at some of the graphs. Well, first of all, on quantitative easing, there's a very good argument to be made, and we've made it repeatedly. I know, Emil, you've made the case before that quantitative easing is actually tightening. It's supposed to be easing because it increases Mm. the level of bank reserves. But what it actually does is it trade useless, inert bank reserves or laundromat tokens, as you call them for usable, workable collateral that's flexible and dynamic and traded all over the marketplace as, the again, the backbone of the financial system. So the Fed stupidly takes the collateral away. And in the early part of the quote-unquote recovery period, the first couple of QEs up to QE4, the Fed was actually buying on-the-run treasuries, which are the best of the best. And so the Fed is taking collateral out of the marketplace that the marketplace badly needs. And the Fed has this window at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York where dealers can come in and rent securities that the Fed has just taken away from them, which is not not something that dealers really want to do. But it is sort of a workaround that has historically shown to be sort of a last resort and collateral where dealers with no other option go to the Fed, hat in hand, and say, "I need some Treasuries from you." Right. So
0: that goes back to our earlier discussion, right? We moved from a system that was uncollateralized. To one where it is, it must be collateralized. And there's this big entity that's hoovering up all the very good collateral from the system.
1: Well, you know, I wanna make it clear here too that it's not like repo wasn't a huge part of the system before, because it was. And repo actually became the marginal source of funding before the crisis. It's just that there was a huge unsecured marketplace too. And those two things actually went hand in hand. The development of the federal funds market and the development of the repo market were actually sort of a twin, two sides of the same euro dollar coin, if you will. So there was a massive unsecured market as well as a massive repo market or secured market before the crisis. And then 2007, 2008 comes along and the unsecured market just disappeared entirely, leaving essentially repo as the the final recourse for the entire global system. Jeff, I
0: may have missed it, but have you explained to the audience that the Federal Reserve is lending securities to dealers? Have we talked about that already?
1: I don't know if we have. I think we did go over that in a prior episode, but it might have been so long ago that it's worth refreshing the the idea here, which is, look, the Fed has been in the collateral business as long as its owned earning assets going back to the 1920s. In fact, repurchase agreements themselves are an outgrowth of the fact that the Fed can't lend a securities dealer and bend the intention, uh, the the spirit of of regulations and laws to be able to try to fund what uh, securities dealers were doing in the old days. And so there's inventories of securities on the Fed's balance sheet that the market wants and market needs. And so there's always been sort of a modest relationship there where push comes to shove. Maybe the Fed can help out dealers by renting them collateral, which really hadn't been a big thing until around... Oh, August 2007. Right. So now we've got a graph up that travels all
0: the way back in time to 2002, all the way up to present. And it shows securities lent to dealers from the Federal Reserve. It's a weekly report. This is in the millions. And as you just said, it was sort of meh.
1: Yeah, just a little nibbling around the edges. Occasionally, I might need a couple million. Nothing big, nothing too heavy. What happened from August 2007 to Bear Stearns and Lehman?
0: Huge spikes. Why? Why were we seeing this acceleration in the Federal
1: Reserve lending securities, U.S. Treasuries, Jeff, to dealers? Yeah, You just said it. U.S. Treasuries to dealers. Dealers were short of collateral. In fact, Bear Stearns didn't fail because it was subprime mortgage losses or any kind of losses. The Bear Stearns was out of business or you know nearly out of business because JP Morgan tapped them on the shoulder in March of 2008 and said I need about six I think it's six billion, maybe it was eight billion. I need several billion in new collateral that I know you don't have. It was a collateral shortage. and the reason we had a collateral shortage back starting in August of 2007, all the way through the entire crisis was because the system had manufactured financial collateral out of illiquid mortgage bonds. That's really the whole point of what securitization was. It was to take illiquid loans that are just kind of sitting there on a balance sheet, package them together in what everybody hoped was a rational, insane way, and create liquid securities out of them that could be used in the repo market so that you could obtain the highest form of funding leverage available, short-term, rollover, secured, Financing and repo using mortgage bonds, but 2006 the housing bubble starts to get a little bit shaky. Suddenly, those mortgage bonds are revalued in the marketplace as collateral because, as we always say, what's important in secured lending is whether or not the cash lender is feels comfortable enough with the security that you're posting. If you default on the loan, can I sell that security tomorrow morning? and not take no chance of whatsoever of taking any loss. And so I look at the security that you're giving me as collateral for our funding arrangement. And I'm only worrying about whether or not is there price volatility? Is the market reliably liquid? Those kinds of characteristics. And as 2006 turned into 2007, concurrent to all of these bad signs, you know, Eurodollar futures inverted, the yield curve starts to invert, liquidity in those marketplaces started to dry up. Some of those securities exhibited wild swings in volatility, and the repo market started to revalue mortgage bond collateral. And repo counterparties were saying, look, I won't take these mortgage bonds, even the prime mortgage bonds. It wasn't always just subprime. Even the prime mortgage bonds, I don't want it at the price I gave yesterday. I have to have a much larger haircut to protect myself because the market isn't as liquid as it appeared to be. And that caused a chain reaction, which meant Either you got to post more of these mortgage bonds as a collateral, which you can't do, or you've got to find good collateral that you can post, which basically herded everybody into the best of the best quality collateral, which is U.S. Treasuries, because there's a dependable liquid market in U.S. Treasuries. And if you don't have them in your own inventory, you got to borrow them from someplace. And push comes to shove, maybe you got to borrow them from Ben Bernanke at the New York window in the, at the Fed. Exactly. So we just described the global financial
0: crisis, euro dollar number one of four. As listeners know, there have been four of these monetary collateral shortages in the last 15 years. And my favorite chart or data point that traces out very well when these things began and ended is also reported by the Federal Reserve. And that is the net position of primary dealers with U.S. Treasuries. U.S. Treasury net position of primary dealers and before August 2007, they were net short. Why would you own these safe and liquid instruments? We're making money here. And then what a U-turn. What a U-turn after that. And then you can see the undulations of the crises ever since.
1: Maybe we should do that one of these days, Emil. We should line those two charts up together because I think they would look almost, they not identical, but there would be enough of a resemblance where you could say, You could see that dealers used to be not short because they were betting against the treasury market, but net short because they were lending them out to everybody who wanted them. And all of a sudden they realized, we can't lend these out like we used to. And if we can't lend them out like we used to, now we're net long, maybe we got to borrow some from the Fed too. And I think if you line those two charts up together, there'll be more than a passing resemblance because it's basically the same idea. Scramble for collateral, which is a phrase that we've used many times over the last couple of years in particular. Scramble for collateral in a very over uh, an overview situation of what happened, not just in 2007 and 2008, but as the beginning of a systemic change in how the system has functioned. Perfect, exactly. That's what I wanted to say is that there is a resemblance,
0: but I would say that what we're looking at right now, the securities lent to dealers by the Federal Reserve, seems to be more of a precursor, a leading indicator. Is that your sense, Jeff? When we look at the 2011 Eurodollar number two, and then in my opinion, Eurodollar number three began 2014, but we see another spike in these securities lending in 2013 for um, reasons that you can discuss.
1: Yeah, that was uh, the Fed buying on the run treasuries in 2013. (laughs) They were forcing you know, dealers to rent them back from them. We'll zoom in
0: on present day in just a second. But what do you think of that? This is more of a leading indicator or it seems to not coincide with what my opinion is of when the, the crisis
1: is really beginning. What do you think, Jeff? It's a warning, I say. Yeah, I think there's something to be said that at the very least coincident, right? Because if you go to 2018, mm-hmm. for example, you see this, the rise in lending activity at the Federal Reserve window around, I think it was late August, early September where it started, which is a couple months in advance of what we call the landmine, which was really when proverbial feces hit the fan. Yeah, there is some leading, the sense of leading indicator there at best or at worst, a coincident indicator. Okay,
0: let's zoom in on present day because that's what this is supposed to be about. We're supposed to be explaining purely monetary, non-economic reasons why the U.S. Treasury curve and Eurodollar futures curve have inverted and now we're looking at a graph that goes just back to 2020 up to present day and we see gfc2 then a relaxation as we're entering reflation
1: then we see an increase not just reflation but remember flood of treasury bills the treasury bill uh, issuance especially in april of 2020 was overwhelming so that helped solve the problem too And then we see kind of a sideways
0: gentle increase and now a more sustained increase that you point out Fedwire coincides with Fedwire up to April 2021.
1: Anything to say about that segment? Time and time and time. How many times do we see this on charts and on data? It always goes back to February of 2021, which is I think most people would find that shocking. Most of the general public would find that shocking because their view of the system since February 2021 is the exact opposite. We've heard about too much money. We've heard about bank reserve. We've seen consumer prices accelerate rapidly. Yet here we see time and time again in all of these deep fundamental ways inside the euro analysis, inside the shadow money system, something broke and it hasn't been fixed. In fact, it's been, it's one escalating warning after another after another. And here we have another one where dealers all of a sudden were scrambling for collateral. Late February, early March into April of 2021, which is an indication that things were not going the right way. There wasn't too much money. There was not enough collateral. From April through September, we see that there was a decrease in securities
0: lent to dealers. I think good people can disagree. The, this particular market was saying it's gotten less worse. Other indicators were saying it's not really getting better. Fair enough. Okay. But then I think there is an agreement across many markets that from September, the fall of 2021, things have been getting worse. Is that what we're seeing in this market measure as well?
1: Yeah, and it's exactly coincident with almost everything else, including repo fails, which uh, started to spike around late September, early October, just as dealers were borrowing more treasuries from the Fed. So I think it's reasonable to surmise here that we have a very good indication that Collateral has become scarce, if not short at at particular periods of time, which bringing this back to our general purpose of the discussion, what does that have to do with the yield curve? It has to do with the yield curve in two different ways. One is that the price of collateral, if it's in a short supply and high demand, the price itself is going to go up. And so there could be a bid for even bonds and notes, especially on the run bonds and notes, just for collateral purposes by and large not just treasury bills, but also some of the longer-term instruments as well. And number two, the potential for deflationary outcomes as a collateral shortage becomes a collateral squeeze, a real event, which would depress long-run growth and inflation potential. So you have a fundamental signal in these marketplaces, which is related to collateral scarcity, which is, I think, the evidence for it is, is overwhelming. Jeff you said the word deflation right now and we often get complaints
0: on Twitter that consumer prices are increasing and they haven't fallen therefore you are wrong and you're a bad person too Jeff that's what twitter says we on twitter we got a question from Niels Ola Ripfjall from Norway which i can't wait to visit okay at r i s s e l nine, nine, nine. Here's the question. It's just that I get so many questions when I listen to you've talked a lot about inflation, but then what is deflation? What is reflation? There also seems to be good inflation and deflation. What separates the two? What is it we'd like to see when a country grows its wealth? Lots of questions. We don't have time
1: to answer them all, inflation, deflation, disinflation. I love the way he ended it, though. Real wealth is the goal here. Money itself is not the goal. Money is a tool. And so when I say inflationary or deflationary, I'm referring mostly to the monetary system when I think most people are referring to the symptoms or the outcomes of the monetary system, which is inflation to them is consumer prices, where inflation to me is more about inflationary currency. So Yeah, I think, you know, I'm very much guilty of using these terms far too cavalierly. and should be probably I should probably be more specific and more defined in how I use them. And I think it's great that he pointed out that, you know, hey, let's talk about these things as they actually are. And so just briefly, to me, inflationary currency means expansion of the monetary supply, an oversupply. Deflationary currency is a restriction or constriction of the monetary supply, which creates disinflationary, potentially outright deflationary outcomes in terms of consumer prices and a drag on economic growth. And reflation is kind of in between where we go from constrictive money supply to less constrictive money supply, but never getting to sufficient or oversupply. So reflation is kind of like less deflationary money. And that's usually when we get fooled into believing that the economy starts to behave a little bit better, but it never gets into actual recovery because it's not full inflationary currency. It's actually still disinflation or deflationary currency that strangles economic growth fantastic
0: reply I'm gonna be able to answer now when people ask me what does Jeff mean about deflation it's about the monetary conditions not so much consumer prices excellent Jeff in the next episode we're going to talk about our fourth measure tri-party repo and what we're seeing there that may explain the inversions of the different curves.